Hello and welcome back to Psychedelic Therapy Frontiers, the podcast devoted to exploring the frontiers of psychedelic medicine and what it takes to cultivate a healthy mind, body, and spirit. I'm Dr. Steve Thayer, and today my co-host, Dr. Reed Robison, and I are joined by Kyle Buller from Psychedelics Today. Kyle's a mental health counselor, transpersonal breathwork instructor, and psychedelic therapy educator. Co-founded by Kyle and Joe Moore, Psychedelics Today is an education platform committed to exploring and discussing the field of psychedelics and non-ordinary states of consciousness. They have an excellent podcast, a blog, a training programs for people interested in psychedelic therapy and all things transpersonal. We talked to Kyle today about his near-death experience as a teenager, wild story, uh, about transpersonal psychology as a discipline, holotropic breath work, the challenges of training psychedelic therapists, and a lot more. Uh, links to everything we talk about on the podcast are found at psychedelictherapyfrontiers.com. You can like the show, you can rate the show, you can subscribe to the show. All these things help us spread the good word of mental health and psychedelic healing. Please go to Instagram and follow us to boost our self-esteem. You can follow me at Dr. Steve Thayer on Instagram. You can follow Reed at Innerspace Doctor on Instagram and Novamind at Novamind. Um, yeah, if you'd like to reach out to us and email us questions, um, guests, ideas, you can email us at psychfrontiers at novamind.ca. Without further ado, I bring you Kyle Buller. Welcome back to Psychedelic Therapy Frontiers. Uh, today we are excited to have Kyle Buller from Psychedelics Today on the podcast. Welcome, Kyle. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here as well. Yeah. So and to uh, finally meet. I've been following you guys for a bit. Well, so, so likewise. I, in fact, I was yeah. I was trying to think back to the first time I uh, was exposed to your work, and I think it was in 2017 when I was really getting interested in the psychedelic okay. space. Found your podcast, started listening religiously, and then I met you guys. Uh, I mean, met. I went up to your table at the Arizona Psychedelics Conference in 2018. Oh, nice. Yeah, that was a while ago. Yeah. And I think you guys had your, uh, uh, maybe your integration workbook. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So that, that was kind of my, uh, my baptism into psychedelics today. I've but, been listening. Wow, you got started early. Yeah. Yeah. I've been listening for a long time too. And, and Kyle, I'd love to hear your story. Uh, however you'd like to tell it, just get a little background on how you, how you got there and, uh, how it's led to what you're up to today. Yeah, thank you. Um, I'll tr try to keep the short version, maybe. Sometimes I can go into some pretty long details. But um, yeah, it really started, I started to become interested, I guess, in consciousness. I mean, as a kid, really, like just really kind of spinning around in circles. I just always kind of loved to alter my consciousness a little bit. Um, and then I came across meditation when I was 15. I, I stumbled across this book called Snowboarding to Nirvana. Um, and it was about uh, this guy who went over to Nepal, ran into a monk and started to learn transcendental meditation. And um, I just started snowboarding around then. And I said, wow, this is really cool. Like, you know, be able to like enter flow states and, and kind of be one. Um, and then about a year later, um, I kind of joke around and say, I actually snowboarded to Nirvana to some degree. So when I was 16, um, I had a really traumatic snowboarding accident. Um, grew up in New Jersey and I was uh, snowboarding over in, in Pennsylvania. And I was doing some night skiing. It was New Year's Eve. And I was going around this uh, turn pretty quick. And just the way the light was, um, it was going pretty fast on my toe edge. And came out of that turn, there was just a mound of snow there. Time started to slow down. And I just 
had a million thoughts racing through my head and said, oh, shit, if I hit this, I'm going to die. So I tried turning. I tried stopping. It was like this mound just sucked me right into it. And I probably flew through the air about like 30 feet or so. I wasn't really high. It was kind of like low just because I was going really fast. Um, Nose of my snowboard hit, my shoulder hit, and then I heard a loud pop, and I thought I I snapped a rib. That was my immediate... um, immediate thought um and just started i I, it was immense pain um and i remember just laying there um for a while just grunting as people were just whizzing by me um thankfully my brother was there with his friend he came down tried to go get ski patrol and um two two guys on snowboards stopped put a snowboard in front of me so nobody would hit me coming out of that turn um so i was on the mountain for about maybe 45 minutes or so until ski patrol um came and um i knew something was wrong i couldn't move i could barely breathe um and i was just in so much pain so by the time i got down to the first aid um they were a little shooken up and uh said you know your ribs are fine there's no bruising nothing seems broken but you're really pale and your vitals are really low your pulse is really low uh, we think you have internal injuries mm. um and at that moment, I wasn't a very religious person, but um, I started praying. I remember going, God, if you're there, I, I, I don't want to die tonight. The first thought when I heard internal injuries was just, oh, shit, I'm going to die. Um, so thankfully, they, they, they got the medevac and um, got helicoptered me out of there. And I just found out maybe a few years ago, my dad was telling the story. And one of the first responders just looked at him and said, you know, your son's in this golden hours and he may not make it. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm terrified at that moment. I'm like, I don't know what's going on. I'm in so much pain. I've never felt this before. So by the time I got to the, um, ER, um, I started to have a very expansive, uh, experience. I felt like I was all throughout the room. I could feel like emotions. I could feel the anxiety with all the nurses and doctors. Um, and you know, I could hear them tell me they couldn't get my pulse, my veins and my upper body were collapsing. Um, they did a sonogram on me and, uh, took me to a CAT scan machine and, you know, told me I had massive internal bleeding, um, and I, they needed to figure out where it was coming from. Um, and I remember when I was in the CAT scan machine, I started to have like this near death experience. Something kind of came over me, um, and said, you know, uh, you're going home, you're going back to the stars where we all come from. And, uh, the more you struggle with this process, the harder it's going to be. So the more that you can relax into it, uh, the easier this transition is going to be, uh, your physical life's going to cease to exist, but you'll continue onward. And I just had this blissful feeling of I'm going home. This is it. This is what we all wait for. Um, and I could just hear the doctors on the intercom saying, don't fall asleep, Kyle, don't fall asleep, stay with us. And I was just kind of blissed out going, but I'm going home. Um, like this is, this is amazing. Um, and then, you know, Thankfully, uh, they got me into surgery. Um, I found out I ended up rupturing my spleen. I lost about five to five and a half pints of blood internally. Wow. Um, they said if I came in five or 10 minutes later, I would have been um, pronounced dead on arrival. So, you know, you can imagine what that does to somebody that's 16. Um, it really kind of shook up my identity. Um, I kind of came back to that, um, you know, just being in school and all my peers, you're kind of forming your identity and you know, worrying about experimenting in all sorts of senses. And I'm going, I don't know what the hell I'm doing here. <laughs> um, what mm. are we doing here on earth? So I, I really struggled with this heavy, heavy existential crisis. Um, and, you know, people that I guess typically share about their near death experiences, talk about this, you know, bliss that, that comes with it. And 
I wrote that out for about three, three months or so. Um, but then I hit some really dark valleys and it got kind of really scary, um, kind of sank into a pretty dark depression, a lot of suicidal ideation. And um, that was really wanting to go back to that, that bliss state, like thinking that this is not my home. Um, I, I belong somewhere else um, from that experience that, that I had. Um, and then so about a few years later, I think it was 19 or 20, I had an experience with psilocybin um, with a friend. And it brought me back to that place. Um, it, it just blew my mind. And I, I came out of that going, how could I ingest something that grows from the earth that could produce something so profound and remind me so much of dying? Um, and that feeling was so eerie. It just reminded me of dying. And I said, there's, there's something here. Um, and I didn't know anything about the research. You know, I was just young and naive and just went into this kind of in a escape, like an escapism mentality of like, I'm just wanting to kind of uh, tune out for a bit. Um, but it helped to like, I guess, recontextualize some of the, the questions I had um, and helped me kind of heal from the psycho-spiritual trauma uh, that I went through with that near-death experience. And so I came back from that and said, I need to figure out what the hell is going on here. So um, picked up a lot of different books. Uh, I think I came across Rick Strassman's book. Um, that was, I think, the first one. And I didn't pick it up because it said DMT. Um, I just saw something in the subtitle around near-death experiences. And I said, I need to read into this. Um, and started learning more about psychedelics. So um, that brought me down a path of finding Groff and, and other kind of transpersonal theorists. And I stumbled across transpersonal psychology and I just said, I, I need to study this. <laughs> so I found a little unique school up in uh, Burlington, Vermont, um, that had a, a bachelor's in transpersonal psychology. And that's really, I guess, where, where this story begins. Um, and that's how my path got started here. Wow. That's, that's, uh, an incredibly intense experience to go through as a teenager. Um, yeah. Does it, as you've reflected on it and looked back, does it seem like uh, a pretty similar experience to what many others have had, um, whether it's at that age or later in life, like those stages you went through after? Um, yeah, I think so. I do hear some folks that have had near-death ex experiences really talk about that bliss and how life-changing it is, and then also hitting um, that kind of those darker valleys. Um, and I was at a, a conference back in 2019, the Assist Conference, and they had a video uh, around integrating spiritually transformative experiences. And it was so validating to hear other people that had near-death experiences to talk about the challenges. Um, and so, you know, it was interesting. Like I didn't do too much research into other people's near death experiences for some weird reason. Like I did yeah. a little bit, but, um, I think I just, once I stumbled down the psychedelic path, I was more interested in that experience all of a sudden. Yeah. Um, but it was interesting to hear some of these, these, uh, you know, integration challenges after really profound experiences like that. So yeah, many, so many parallels. Right. Yeah. Read, like yeah. there's so many parallels between what you what I'm hearing you describe as your near death experience and people's experiences with certain psychedelics and like the challenges of integration um, and and uh, drawing meaning out of these experiences that is actionable and applicable. So it doesn't yeah. doesn't surprise me that you went from near death experience to psychedelic experience and that became your new sort of focus of interest. Yeah. Do you think it would have been similar if you had been thrown into 
like a DMT or 5-MeO-DMT or an ayahuasca ceremony at age 16 at a high dose with uh, little prep or support after, do you think it would have played out in a similar way at that age? I'm just curious with what you know now. I don't, yeah. yeah, I don't know. That's a really interesting question. Like I think about that experience I had with psilocybin and it was a relatively low dose and I had kind of like a full blown mystical DMT like experience kind of entity encounters. Um, and you know, when I share people that share that story with people, like how, how many grams did you eat? And I only ate two grams. And I think there is something in my psyche that's very primed for that after the near death experience. And so thinking <clears throat> back and saying, you know, if I had a full blown uh, psychedelic experience before this would I have a very profound psychedelic experience and I don't know maybe maybe not I think that near-death experience really opened me up to a new way of seeing the world um, and I think uh, that really primed me for more powerful psychedelic experiences because I mean most of my friends you know they were kind of having fun with it right like I came back to try to share some of my experiences and they're like that's i never had that experience before <laughs> on mushrooms so um yeah i think that near-death experience probably primed me a little bit more yeah, yeah this, you know it's this, just a, a fascinating ahead, thing um to think about because we talk sometimes about how a psychedelic can occasion not just a mystical experience but a death-like experience and um you know what are the similarities and differences between a near-death experience and a an intense psychedelic experience, and I know there are a lot of uh, factors at play in on an individual level. But what were you going to say, Steve? A similar point to yours, Reed. Like it, it seems to me that a lot of the value that we're trying to give people with psychedelic-assisted therapy or psychedelic medicine is um, is leveraging some of the same things you get out of a near-death experience. You get uh, unity with the universe, or you get an encounter with the divine. Or you get a perspective shift on your life. You get this time dilation effect. Um, and that perspective shift is one about meaning. You get sort of this existential shock. All the things that people talk about with reference to near-death experiences, many of those things, I should say, um, are similar in intense psychedelic experiences, which is, as an aside, why I'm a little skeptical of some of the research um, being done or maybe it's not research, but it's, uh, you know, um, commercial endeavors being done for creating psychedelics without the psychedelic experience. You're, yeah. you're familiar with that, Kyle, I'm sure. Yeah, I actually did a panel for SciTech, um, and that, that was the topic. Mm -hmm. uh, Nichols was on there, and I forget the other two folks, Olson and I forget the other uh, person. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I'm sure there's a place. I mean, there's a place for a lot of revolution and evolution in this industry. But yeah, I mean, the 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 psychedelic experience itself just seems so crucial. Yeah, and I think like one thing that that I thought about with that panel is there's definitely certain indications where that would be like really great. You know, for example, cluster headaches. Mm. Like it does seem that, mm -hmm. um, like, say, what is it? Bromo LSD, I forget the, the 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 derivative there, but it seems really beneficial um, to treat cluster headaches. But you don't have the psychedelic experience, and I do know some folks um, that really suffer from migraines, and you know they have their 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 psychedelic experience. But I think for those that really suffered, they constantly want to go into that that realm and have that experience, whether it's like monthly, just to kind of treat that pain. Mm -hmm. And so I think there is probably some application there with some disorders um, that could be really beneficial. 
But yeah, I don't know. I think I'm a little biased on the side that there is the experience that brings some of the healing qualities, um, kind of being able to maybe step outside yourself for a bit to have, you know, new perspective, um, especially when it comes to depression and more mental health disorders of like, yeah, being able to step outside oneself can be really, really helpful to, to gain new perspective, new insight. Is that, is that what is meant by transpersonal? Because I'll be honest, I don't, I'm a clinical psychologist, but I didn't have any classes in transpersonal psychology in graduate school. Could, could you educate us and our listeners about transpersonal psychology as a discipline? Yeah, so transpersonal, if you break the word down, just means beyond the personal. So um, really looking at a variety of human experiences, exceptional experiences, so ranging from anywhere from meditation to near-death experiences, dreams, um, shamanism, psychedelics. Um, and it's really trying to weave um, kind of the, those spiritual mystical type of experiences with science and trying to develop a framework. Um, it kind of got, it got branched out of... Um, uh, humanistic psychology. Um, so Groff and uh, James Fadiman, uh, Anthony Stewart, and a few others were, were meeting. And I think it kind of uh, kicked off at, at Esalen. And they were trying to think of a new branch of psychology um, kind of coming out of that human potential movement and the humanistic movement um, that would really in incorporate um, some of these other experiences. I mean, obviously, Groff was coming from, uh, you know, his, his deep research, probably over 4,000 uh, psychedelic sessions at that time by the time he got to Esalen thinking yeah we, we need a new psychology here um, that really incorporates um, the, these types of experiences that science and regular psychology just doesn't have a framework for so it's really just trying to create a framework for, for these types of experiences that's and, how I see it and Maslow was one of the Maslow, OGs yeah. huh uh, have you met Stan Groff or worked with him I have, yeah. I did a, a breathwork workshop with him. Met him at a conference a few times. Um, we just recorded with him um, in the, a couple of weeks ago, so we, oh, we'll cool. be releasing that episode um, pretty soon. Yeah, I, really I figured you probably have, and um, I have not. And one reason I ask is I'm wondering what strikes you about him as a person or his presence. You, you know, he's after watching the way of the psychonaut, especially, and hearing about how he. Uh, was able to navigate intense uh, experiences that people had during ceremony. Um, it just made me more curious about what makes him tick and, and uh, you know, how he was able to get to that point. I think, yeah, I wondered the same stuff. And I, I was just re-listening to an episode that um, my uh, co-founder Joe uh, did with uh, Sean Kelly and, and, and Rick Tarnas, and they're just kind of talking about the new book that um, it's a compilation of uh, essays around Stan's work. And there was one thing that, that came up, I think it was uh, Rick Tarnas maybe saying that Stan really trusted the process even when it was very, very, very difficult for people, really, I guess, tuning into that, what we would call that inner healing intelligence um, and really trusting it, even how dark it got. Um, and that was something that really stood out to me reading his, his uh, work early on, like going through some really dark night of the soul type of stuff in my early 20s after some really profound psychedelic experiences. When I stumbled across Stan, I said, oh my God, here's somebody that just is providing a language for my experiences and is also giving me reassurance that 
I might get out of this. <laughs> and I think that that has been probably the, the main takeaway for me is like really trusting that even even how dark and scary some of these experiences can be, if we can really stick with it, we can, you know, move out to the other side. And even um, being with my teachers uh, that, that study with Stan in, in the uh, uh, holotropic breathwork training, you know, that was one thing that they really kind of emphasized too, just being in the room with Stan, watching him be so confident in trusting a person's process, no matter kind of how crazy it gets, just his certainty that, that people will be able to, to move through it. Um, yeah, I like that. That really uh, feels like it hits on something uh, that, you know, takes some time and, and perhaps temperament traits to cultivate is the ability to stick with it, especially in the uncomfortable. I just think about how so many people might naturally shy away from someone's intense uh, emotions or anger even. Um, and, uh, you know, I really like how you put that of uh, Stan's confidence and trust in the process unfolding to uh, persist and hold space until they all get to the other side. I think it's an, it's an attitude and an approach that needs to be translated to this up and coming generation of psychedelic assisted therapists. Because, you know, a, a lot of... Um, a lot of approaches to mental health conditions, mental illnesses, psychological struggles, however you want to label them, is one of amelioration, right? Let's take what hurts and make it go away. Yeah. And so to to approach a problem with this dark night of the soul, trust the process, the inner healer is the guide attitude uh, isn't intuitive to a lot of people. And yeah. I think needs to be communicated and trained. It's really hard too, right? Because there's the part where, like, say, a therapist is showing up. It's like, you know, there's kind of like damage control, right? It's like, how do we contain this? What if like something really bad starts to unfold? But really trusting that this person has this inner healing intelligence within them, and encouraging them to really trust that, which is really hard to do. Mm -hmm. um, and it's so outside the scope of traditional psychiatry and psychology, right? Um, and it's a hard thing to teach somebody. Yeah. Um, I think that was probably one of the um, most beneficial things through some of my training um, with breath work. And I guess some of that transpersonal psychology approach was I always kind of came into say, say traditional um, health uh, work that I did with this confidence that even though if people are going through a crisis, how do we just be with them? And really just hold that space. And I remember working with uh, in teenagers in crisis. I worked at a hospital diversion program. And most of them were pretty suicidal and depressed. But not trying to, like, you know, suppress their experience. And I would just sit there and just be with them. And then later on, I... Um, worked at a really interesting uh, residential treatment center um, that was for people with early episode psychosis. And the whole process was around being with somebody, not trying to stop it, but just to be with their humanness, be with their experience. And that's really challenging, right? Because as a healer, a therapist, a caregiver, you're like, I want to help this person. I want to do something to them to make them feel better. Um, but, you know, sometimes people just need to have somebody be with them um, and maybe reassure them that, that it's okay and you know, you'll, you'll get out on the other side. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, there's a bunch of nuances and caveats there, right? Sometimes we need to intervene. We need to do things um, to keep people safe, but um, it's a hard thing to, to teach. Yeah, there is nothing more powerful that I've encountered 
um, at least when help is needed, than the presence of a supported other to help them get to the other side of whatever the struggle is. Yeah. Yeah. And it is difficult to know where to draw that line, right? Of when to intervene. Um, we're training our clinicians on how to do ketamine assisted psychotherapy. We, we get this question all the time, right? Um, how, uh, how dark is too dark for that dark night of the soul? And <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. And I, I don't know that there's a manual. I don't know that there's a flow chart that can tell you exactly. Yeah, when what's the answer? <laughs> I think this is where it's like that mix between art and science, right? Mm-hmm. Like there is, I guess, that like intuition that comes through. Um, and, you know, the, yeah, I mean, this is a question that we get all the time um, in either breath work or in, in our uh, classes that we teach. And it is a very kind of nuanced uh topic to explore because everybody's going to be so different. But the one thing that I come back to is how, how can we teach people to really tune into their own nervous system and tune into their own body and start to ask that question, why do I want this to stop? What, what inside me is wanting this to, to stop or what inside me wants to make this better for this person? Mm. Um, and, you know, sometimes it's a lot of sitting with your own stuff and being like, oh, I notice I want to intervene because I'm watching this person cry and it's triggering me and I feel like I need to do something to them. Um, but, you know, as in... Um, you know, my, my breathwork teacher always kind of uh, emphasizes, especially when we're talking about body work, do, uh, doing by not doing, right? Just really be there. And I think about, you know, I've had a few experiences in breathwork where somebody has intervened where it looked something dark, right? I was going through a process. I was really having catharsis and somebody swoop in and, and did something. I was like, oh, you to- just totally broke me out of something I needed to go through. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I really reflect on those experiences pretty often. Um, if I wasn't asking for help, I probably didn't need it. And if I really did need help, and I know people do have a hard time asking for help. So again, it's like that, that balance of how do we pay attention and really kind of tune into our own nervous system um, and then just be there. Yeah. I love the point that you made about uh, not, not intervening because uh, you're uncomfortable, right? The, the importance of professional helpers to do their own work. It cannot be overstated so that you can be aware of your own triggers and have a good sense for, like what's motivating this desire of mine to make this person calmer or feel better? Is it uh, because I think that's what's best for them, or is it because I think that's what's best for me right now? Because I'm freaking out. <laughs> like this is this is distressing to me. Like in, I've been there. Yeah. Yeah. In the uh, MDMA therapy training, Michael and Annie dish out that acronym. Wait, why mm. am I talking? Which mm-hmm. uh, I think is a great great reminder. You know, and I have had an experience um, being a, a CAP therapist, ketamine-assisted psychotherapy, where, um, you know, I have a client who appears to be going through something very, very difficult. And we've talked beforehand during the preparation phase, What, uh, in what way do they want to have support? Um, and uh, especially since they're going to be wearing headphones often is the case and listening to loud music, a lot of the times we'll talk about what therapeutic touch looks like. And, you know, the, mm. uh, the way I will offer therapeutic touch is to hold your hand. Um, and we'll talk about kind of ways to signal whether or not that's wanted or not wanted. And for this particular client, I held their hand and they reported to me afterward that it it was when they got my hand that they felt like they could dive deeper. So Mm. the handhold was not a rescue from, it was a support. And I didn't know this was going to happen. I just wanted to support. Um, but they said that, uh, you know, they were at least for their, 
their experience. They were on this, this edge of this deep pit and they felt like there was something down there, a shadow self down there that, that was frightening, but they wanted to get to know. And it, it was when I held their hand that they then plunged down and did a lot of really important mm. work. Yeah, it almost like provides a little bit of reassurance that somebody's there mm. and it's going to keep them safe as they, they take that, that dive. Yeah, kind of like what Reed was saying about uh, validating support being some of the best things we can do when we're trusting the inner healer to take the lead. Yeah. You know, there's there's this uh, psychotherapist who I read about once. I think the book was, oh, what was it called? To Redeem One Person is to Redeem the World. It's a book about the life of, and I don't even know how to pronounce her name, Frida from Freichmann, Freichmann, mm-hmm. if you uh, know any German, but uh, a psychotherapist who had this incredible amount of patience and belief in the inner light in each individual client. And she worked with uh, severe and persistent, chronically mentally ill, and would do anything it takes for as many hours um, waiting with them as they, like, kind of like you were saying, Kyle, about your experience in the residential treatment center of, of holding space for psychosis instead of like swatting it away with the big guns, heavy-duty antipsychotics, uh, anti-manic agents that we tend to do reflexively here in our system. But but uh, it really, reading about this woman and her approach to clients and loneliness, she said there's, there's nothing more... Um, difficult than the loneliness of someone who is in the throes of a severe mental health uh, or mental mm. illness episode. And it's not like the solitude you seek when you go on a boat at sea or, or something else. It is like, like to the core. But, and if we're even sitting with them and not communicating through our presence and words that we understand it, it might not help. And it might even add to the loneliness compared to like any little bit we can do to get in there with them and share that space, that moment uh, can, you know, work magic on their ability to, to ride it towards a place of healing or wholeness. Yeah, that's interesting. Something just kind of came up around my own personal process with my near death experience and like just seeking support around that from time to time. And um, people just, reassuring me that it was like okay and I was going to be like better and kind of imposing I guess like frameworks around me and there was part of me that just felt so lonely that I'm like I just need somebody to to hear and listen without saying anything to me like I just need to like get that out I don't need any feedback I just want somebody to hear and witness me Um, and sometimes that's that's really hard uh, to do right because it's like sometimes we want to give feedback or we're like I don't know what to say right now maybe there's like that little bit of anxiety of like how do I hold space for this Um, but yeah sometimes I I do reflect on some of my own experiences with that and it's like I guess one of my teachers also said like the art of space holding and he's like who did you need when you were dying on that mountain? And I think about Mm. it and I go, I just need somebody to be there, not say a thing. And I'm glad that's, that's who I, who showed up people that weren't panicking. They were reassuring. They weren't trying to ask me a million questions. They were just there. Not, not saying much. Um, And that's all I needed. It was just a strong presence. And I think, I think that's what it is. It's just a strong presence um, that just says, Hey, I'm here with you and I'll be with you. That may be one of the one of the secret ingredients for Stan Groff and why 
he's been so successful in his work, it sounds like. Yeah, maybe. And Kyle, you've given new meaning to the the word. I forgot about this term, uh, golden hour, because I use it a lot because I'm a sucker for a good uh, sunset and you know, photography at that time of day. But I forgot in, in the medical, especially EMS world, there's this golden hour of that critical hour you have to intervene before someone might die. You know, mm. it sounds like they were using that term with you. <laughs> yeah, I never heard that term before. That's interesting. That's kind of, it sounds like a colloquial term in the field. Yeah, it, it comes from, uh, it comes from like f- the French in, I, I don't know the full origins, but in uh, like World War One era, um, and it, there was some debate. I spent some time in around a lot of uh, ER and life flight folks during training, and um, you know some of it's been kind of debunked in terms of you know there aren't that many con- conditions where you have you know a clear cut hour and only an hour. You know some you certainly do, but but there was this. Uh, kind of widespread belief of the first hour was critical to intervene um, that that dates back, you know, decades and decades. Mm. That's interesting because when I think about like the, the height of my near-death experience, I talk about this like golden light um, that kind of like came over me and it's like, yeah, that felt like a kind of like a golden hour. Something was there with me and it, I knew something was totally wrong. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm so fascinated by by transformative experiences that people have when they were young that that are huge course. I don't know if the correction is the right word, but uh, um, that then put them on a course that becomes sort of their life purpose. And it sounds like, you know, you, psychedelics today um, and what you guys are doing there, it, it sort of stems out or you could maybe the origin story is back to this near death experience. I was wondering, Kyle, if you could tell us more about psychedelics today itself and what it is and what you folks are trying to achieve in the world. Yeah. So, um, psychedelics today got started. Um, it was co-founded by myself and Joe Moore. Um, and we got connected through our breathwork teachers, Lenny and Elizabeth Gibson from uh, dream shadow transpersonal breathwork. Um, I met Lenny and Elizabeth when I was at Burlington college. Um, there just happened to be a one credit, uh, weekend workshop, um, for college credit in, in, in breathwork. Um, and so I went down there and had this really, really powerful experience. Um, I was really skeptical and everybody was talking about how psychedelics psychedelic it was going to be. And I'm thinking, you know, I've had my fair share of pretty potent psychedelic experiences, um, in my early twenties. And I had this, uh, you know, near death experience. And I don't think too much of it. Um, but I had a really, really profound experience with that. Um, and it just got me really curious. And so I stuck with it and, um, actually it started to become my focus in, in my undergrad. And in that, in that first breathwork experience, um, I started to relive my near death experience and I kind of came back to that kind of death realm, um, that feels really familiar to me and had this message around teaching about non-ordinary states and, and psychedelics. And I remember being in there going, I don't want to have anything to do with this. Uh, you know, this is such a taboo topic. You know, we're talking about legal substances, even though I had this, this deep curiosity around it. And then about, um, I guess like three years after that, uh, I was uh, had to do a capstone paper and 
Uh, I ended up creating a, a, a three-credit college course called uh, Stan Groff's Psychology of Extraordinary Experiences. And so it was really examining uh, the roots of holotropic states, um, exploring Stan's theory, psychedelics. And then it also had an, an experiential component where we brought the students down to do a weekend workshop and then come back and, and focus on integration. Um, and then the following year, we ended up um, teaching a history of psychedelics course at, at, that, at that college as well. We were trying to develop a kind of psychedelic um, program within this transpersonal program. Unfortunately, the college kind of ended up tanking um, uh, due to just some bad business moves, and they bought a large piece of property that I guess they couldn't afford. And it was a real shame. It had nothing to do with the academics or anything like that, but um, it was a very, very unique program. So uh, I got connected through with Joe um, through the Gibsons, and we actually talked about, hey, maybe we should do this master's program there that we're tr- that, you know they're trying to develop. And then it just kind of started turning into, you know, we have all this material from the Gibsons and we want to maybe kind of archive it. We want a place to, you know, just reflect on it. And then we also noticed, like, I was going to um, a bunch of those conferences in like 2012, 13, 14, and it was very clinically oriented obviously because a lot of the research and we didn't hear too much about breath work or too much mention of stan and so we also started to have this idea of you know this is really important to us and how do we start to bring the breath work conversation back into this com- into the psychedelic conversation so then that that was like the next stage of psychedelics today let's start to really bring breath work and, and groff's work uh, to the forefront here because it's been really important in our work um and then joe already had uh some experience podcasting he had two podcasts before that and so he kind of took on more of the technical aspects and said yeah this is so super easy to do let's just start interviewing people and um so that was kind of like the the origin stories we wanted to kind of have it as an archive um just for for some of our teachers work and then um you know we wanted to just really kind of weave breath work in, into the psychedelic narrative again um and so we started that in 2016 just as a small little passion project and again just kind of keeping our, our teachers lineage alive to some degree and then it's really trans- transformed um in 2017 i think we released our first course called navigating psychedelics uh, lessons on self-care and integration um which was really kind of like taking the core of some of the um work that i put together at burlington college um and there was all this talk around integration, but there weren't too many resources. So we said, you know, let's just interview a bunch of people and start creating resources around this term integration. What is it? You know, how, how do we do it? Um, and so that was kind of the footing. And then we just kept going and going. And, you know, we're almost at six years at this point. We've been releasing podcasts pretty, con- I think, consistently almost e- every week. And then we started doing uh, two times a week uh, when the pandemic hit. And now we've been teaching uh, courses uh, really since 2017 and um, teaching clinicians and therapists around transpersonal psychology, somatics, um, and, uh, you know, psychedelics, how to get involved and how to navigate this, this new space. Do you feel like the pandemic um, sort of poured gasoline on the fire that is psychedelics today? Because uh, you've come a long way in did. a short period of time, right? You've, uh, we'll, we'll talk about it in a second, but now you have this really big offering, this 12-month certification program, the vital program, but 
Yeah, I think the pandemic definitely did. Um, you know, we were offering classes and we were, you know, really just doing all this online um, education. But once the pandemic hit, that really kind of, you know, went through the roof um, since everybody was online all of a sudden. I did notice one interesting trend that like people wanted to attend live courses online. Our podcast numbers dropped for like a few months. Mm. And I'm thinking, people's routines were disrupted. I would listen to podcasts driving, going to the gym, mm. doing certain things. And I even noticed that was disrupted and I wasn't even actually listening to podcasts. So it was interesting. Podcast numbers dropped a bit, but more people were engaged in kind of like the interactive learning. People, It seemed like people wanted more kind of community and um, you know connection. I've heard other podcasts, uh, podcasters talk about that, that they've had noticed that same dip when the pandemic first happened. Cause... Yeah, and I noticed it in my own behavior. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm like, I'm not listening to as many as podcasts as mm -hmm. I used to. And Kyle, how do you make sense of the the various trajectories of popularity that have come, you know, before and throughout the pandemic of, like, we're in the psychedelic renaissance, but, and I'm noticing breathwork is having its day, at least, you it know, is. as yeah. evidenced by all the, I get questions many times a week on um, breath work and how to approach it and what it is, what it isn't. And um, yeah, it's, it's just fascinating to me to try and tease apart what uh, peaked and why and, are, and how interrelated and separate are these trajectories. <laughs> I'm just wondering how you yeah, make sense of it. It's interesting because, yeah, I mean, talking about breath work, you know, when I was during my undergrad, it seemed like such a new thing. And usually when people thought about breath work, it was more kind of like in the yogic tradition, maybe like Kundalini breathing. Um, but yeah, now, and I think the online aspect maybe kind of exploded that people experimenting with online breath work and more people getting involved um, to, to that degree. But I, I have noticed that this trend just kind of went through the roof um, too around breath work, where it was like, oh, nobody's really talking about it. Now, all of a sudden, it's this like new thing, um, which is exciting. And there's all sorts of different schools that people oh, are yeah. doing, right? Like there's people that are doing tons of online breath work. Um, we don't do any of that. Um, just we, we have some kind of safety concerns around it and more yeah. longer form breath work. Maybe people getting too activated and, you know, resurfacing traumas and, and stuff like that. So, yeah, there's lots of different schools, lots of people like experimenting with, with different techniques. It's like, and then maybe Wim Hof also had a big I was just about uh, to say that. that too. I think, you know, yeah. Wim Hof got real popular over the last few years and the promise of being able to run around in the snow shirtless and never get sick again <laughs> and, you know, talk to the God through breathwork. I think it really intrigued a lot of people. Also, um, as people became interested in, in psychedelic experiences, I think um, the fact that, uh, you know, it's not illegal to hyperventilate. Um, so <laughs> yeah. people turn into breathwork to have a non-ordinary state of consciousness when they, you know, couldn't take a, a substance that they were hearing about on a but, podcast. But Steve, you can get a ketamine lozenge mailed to you at home almost as easy as you could fire up a YouTube breathwork uh, sequence. <laughs> well, that was going <laughs> to be my other comment. That like, uh, it, we've had a, a lot of interest in ketamine in particular uh, because it's the quote-unquote only legal psychedelic in the States. Um, and, we, and we have a very full ketamine clinic, I think, for that reason. Do you guys do any online or are you mostly in-person, IM? or it's all, all in-person. Yeah, I mean, we will we will do home doses of ketamine for the right candidates, um, but not with a remote trip sitting and not with the psychedelic therapy goal. It's more in one of the 
the few buckets of ketamine and S-ketamine um, work that we do for people who we know and have, we've worked with in office yeah. where there's an accessibility issue and a very vetted uh, support person to be with them, you know. Makes me wonder how, like, I guess, like the online ketamine space is really kind of, is it going to stick around for long? Um, how it's really kind of maybe transforming uh, maybe future psychedelic therapies. You know, I know in the beginning of uh, COVID, uh, Dr. Raquel Bennett put out a statement around, you know, maybe shifting to remote ketamine work just for the, for the safety of, you know, slowing down the spread. But, you know, it's it seems like it's really stuck around. Um, obviously, lots of companies kind of popping up off offering this um but yeah. yeah it makes me wonder if it will stick around or if people will start to crack down I, on that a little bit more i worry about it because you know it with the psychedelic renaissance in full swing you know i think a lot of us who pay attention to the history want to avoid some of those past mistakes um yeah. whether it's uh stepping on landmines due to uh the wrong move or over overzealousness or whatever. And uh, that's one of the areas where I worry if it's uh, too widespread without the right uh, safety parameters. I'm not saying it, it can't or shouldn't be done because I do believe there are people who are doing it uh, in a, what seems to be a good and safe way um, yeah. from, you know, and, and I've heard the opposite as well, but, but I worry that if there are one or two groups um cranking it out as a ketamine lozenge mill that it might uh, create some unnecessary hurdles for others doing doing good work yeah i think there is that concern um, within the community yeah i think you know we have these different ways we approach ketamine treatment uh i, I think of it at least the, the the terms that i came up with when i was thinking about it there's you know, there's psychedelic ketamine assisted therapy there's psycholytic ketamine assisted therapy and then there's this psychiatric approach where you might see mm. it like the iv clinics where ketamine yeah. is considered an antidepressant it's uh beneficial effects are because of what it does in your brain so let's hook you up to an iv give you the medicine and send you on your way and that that would be my big concern with this home dosing model that people would be sent ketamine lozenges like they'd be sent you know their their ssri hoping that ketamine was going to treat their depression uh at the level of the brain um, but most of the, most of the companies that I see doing this, I don't think they're approaching it that way. They're trying to give people therapeutic resources. They're trying to set them up yeah. with therapists. Yeah. Or, or some sort of support, right? Whether that's, you know, they're calling it a guide or support, a coach. Yeah. Or something like that. Yeah. Um, go ahead, Reed. Oh, well, I just have a burning question about breath work, but, uh, finish your thoughts, Steve, if you have one. <laughs> I was gonna. I was gonna ask another question about uh, integration. So you ask yours about breath okay. Work. It's uh, it's just a curiosity because I uh, do a lot of breath work. Have done a lot and come from yogic traditions more. But uh, and as I mentioned, I don't know Stan. Although I've been to lots of holotropic uh, workshops from skilled facilitators and lectures. Um, but what I'm wondering is with the is it Leonard Orr and one of the 60s, 70s pioneers of breath work and alongside in parallel with Stan Groff, there's this rebirthing uh, yeah. process that is a whole, it's a foreign thing to me. And I'm just wondering what your take is on on um, that part of breath work. Just that framework around the, the rebirthing yeah. aspect. You know, yeah, I mean, people 
when I approach this, I view it as it's a framework and it can come up and it may not come up. And I think one downside of getting too dogmatic around this is the whole purpose of this is to have a rebirth experience I think can kind of put us in a box I remember particularly there was one person that came to a workshop and they said they been to maybe like I don't know 15 workshops in the year and they were so fixated on having their birth reliving their birth experience and it just got me thinking like maybe that's not part of your, your narrative right now and maybe that's not what you need to focus on again really coming back to um, what Groff also calls, calls this inner radar. When we enter into these non-ordinary states, this inner radar that picks up the most highly charged piece of content. Um, and if we're so focused on this narrative of I need to relive my birth experience, maybe we're missing something there. Um, and I think like another downside to that as well is uh, a story that, that Lenny told me when he was either going through training or just a workshop. Um, some, and I share this story pretty often, but... Um, somebody started curling up in the fetal position in, in a workshop and I guess one of the facilitators swooped in and said oh this person must be going through a birth experience let me kind of do body work to support that rebirthing um, and during the group share the person just said I was a Viking warrior dying on the battlefield <laughs> so we don't know what's going on with people and I think that's the one kind of downside about being so maybe dogmatic around frameworks so I like to view it as a map um, and the map is there if we need it and I remember going through some of my own um, rebirthing experiences and during that first breathwork experience I remember I was very calm it's like the, the session started off I was very calm I felt like I was floating in this ocean felt like I was kind of in the womb of my mother meditating and then all of a sudden everything stopped and I shot up from the mat <clears throat> I started choking I, I was grabbing my neck it felt like I had something just wrapped around me and I was gasping for air and I was just, eh, eh, eh. Um, and then I you know stuck with that process I, I breathed through it um and then it and then went into the the near death trauma, um, but you know I, I told my mom that and she said well that's really interesting because uh, you almost died coming out you have mm. the umbilical cord wrapped all around you, wow. um, and so I think about that and I go okay now we have this experience that unfolded, it seems to be valid. And now there's a framework to maybe look at and go, okay, like these uh, perinatal birth matrices that Groff talks about, um, you know, what are the archetypal themes in there? Um, how is that impacting my life still? Can I work with that a little bit more, right? And so it's just helping for me to provide a little bit of context around that experience and maybe gives me a little bit of a map to play with and go, okay, this is coming up. But I always like to remind people too that the map also isn't the territory. So how do we continue to stay curious, right? I mean, I don't know yeah. if anybody's followed Google Maps and brought you down some weird road that isn't a road oh, yeah. anymore. It's happened to me. So maps change. And, and how do we stay open and curious to that as well? Oh, I like that. Thank you for that. Because it, I just had to complete the the other end of the spectrum with that question because we we're talking about near-death experiences and breath work. Uh, and psychedelic experiences, you can go go there and occasion a, a death-like experience and maybe get over some fear of death or uh, end-of-life anxieties or existential issues. Uh, but then there's this whole idea of birth trauma. And, you know, while I, I could totally see how that's a, a rude awakening and could uh, fit the definition of trauma for sure, how does one know that... Uh, birth rebirthing is necessary or healing from birth trauma is necessary um 
uh, compared to working on your the common fear of death that is such a core um, universal fear as, as well. So I like the uh, not getting too attached to the framework or the map. Yeah, yeah. yeah stories, stories like these are, you could look at them as cautionary tales. We have this excitement around psychedelics and, and we get questions, I'm sure you folks do too, all the time, like, uh, where can I find an opportunity to get psychedelic healing? Uh, and then you have just a lot of people who might listen to podcasts like ours or yours and just, you know, they're going to go to Burning Man. They're going to go to a festival. They're going to get mushrooms from their buddy in the woods and yeah. they're going to have some expectations about what that is going to do for them. Uh, and those expectations may or may not influence their trip. But um, I think it's a te- it's a testament to doing this carefully, however you're going to do it. And we yeah. just happen to be in the Western medical world and trying to bring psychedelic-assisted medicine to people in that context. There's lots of other contexts in which to do it, indigenous contexts, ceremonial contexts, you know, religious contexts. Uh, we don't have a monopoly, of course, on these experiences. Uh, but it's just not to take lightly because you know you're gonna you could have some really really destabilizing experiences um and it's one of the things that you know kyle we talked about a little bit earlier before we recorded is the idea of a spiritual emergency yeah and i was wondering if you wanted to talk a bit about that from a transpersonal perspective like what's a spiritual emergency what does it mean to emerge uh and how is that how is that different than an emergency curious your thoughts yeah, so this is a, a term that was coined by Stan and Christina Groff um, to really kind of talk about these psycho-spiritual crises that unfold in a person's life. And there's lots of different ways that people can come across that. You know, it could be induced by ingesting psychedelics, um, near-death experiences. Um, Groff has about like 11 different types of spiritual emergencies, shamanic illness, kundalini awakenings, um, UFO abductions, kind of paranormal uh, experiences, psychic openings. Um, and so there's lots of different ways that people can have these experiences. Sometimes they're induced, um, by your own will, right. To ingesting a psychedelic, uh, substance and then opening yourself up that way, or they just happen spontaneously, right. People can just sometimes have an experience out of nowhere. Um, and all of a sudden they're kind of boom, opened up and really dealing with, with a, a crisis on hand. Um, I was just chatting with uh, Dr. Emma Bragdon the other day. And, um, you know, this is something I've been playing around with too. So Emma um, has been in this field for a very long time, has written books about spiritual uh, emergencies, trains spiritual emergence coaches. And we were just even kind of talking about um, the term spiritual. Like, is there a possible another term that we could be using um, just because that does seem to rub people the wrong, wrong way sometimes? And also to say, what you're going through is spiritual in nature. Um, and that's not always the case for some people, right? They don't, they're not maybe seeing it that way. So a spiritual emergency could look like psychosis a little bit, right? People can find themselves in a little bit of a manic episode. Maybe they realize that they're God. They want to, um, you know, heal the world and, and do X, Y, and Z. Um, and it can really cause a lot of distress. And so there's the concept of spiritual emergence, which is more kind of a milder form. Um, people can go about their daily lives. They can, um, you know, work, their social um, lives aren't falling apart. And when I think about my near-death experience and some of those early psychedelic experiences, even though I thought it was an emergency, now looking back, it was definitely a spiritual emergence 
because I was able to go to work. I was able to do my daily things. I, I was functional. Um, and then when I think about the people that I've worked with with early episode psychosis, that would be more on the emergency, right? People are not able to work. Their lives are kind of falling apart. Um, you know, sometimes people become a little catatonic or, you know, dealing with the, with the mania on the other uh, end of the spectrum. And... <clears throat> So how do we contain that and develop a new framework for understanding these extreme states or these extraordinary experiences? Typically, we want to suppress it, right? We want to say, no, like we need to stop this from happening um, and maybe pathologize it a little bit. But what would it be like to maybe pull back and say, maybe there's some sort of transformation that's going on. Somebody's ego may feel like they're dying. Maybe they're stepping away from an old part of their life and stepping into a new part of their life. And that can be really challenging and and, um, destabilizing. Um, and so I always come back to, to something uh, Stan uh, said is that this isn't to go against traditional psychiatry. This is to offer an alternative and work in relationship with, with regular psychiatry. And this was something that I saw working at that residential home because it was so new um, and going out. And I didn't hear this feedback directly, but I know some of the outreach people would come back and be like, oh man, the hospital thinks we're crazy just creating this house to, to be with people. And really, Really what we were trying to do is create a hospital diversion program to some degree to catch people in their early break and to you know just not have them go right into um, the hospital setting and, and be medicated the whole idea was could we create an environment to be with people while they're going through these really extreme states and maybe we'll make it out on the other side and so you know this is pulling um from research from John Ware Perry from like the Diabasis House. Um, the house was called Soteria. And so that was um, pulled from Dr. Lauren Mosher. The original Soteria House was a research project that lasted about 12 years. I um, mean, they found, I think, I forget the numbers off the top of my head, but it was in the 70% um, that people that, that went through that program um, had, they didn't really use medication. It was just really creating a, 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 a nice environment to be with them they ended up moving through um their experience coming out on the other side and i did see some of that magic with some residents of being in total paranoid states um you know what you would classify as psychotic schizophrenic um and being with them and watching them move move through it without medication sometimes or maybe minimal medication um to you know getting jobs um getting their own apartment and and being um functional and so you know, what, what would it be like to create a, this alternative framework to really support people when they're going through really difficult times in their life instead of just needing to suppress it right away? And I always come back to it from another quote um, from Stan and just paraphrasing here around romanticizing these types of states and thinking, oh, this is like, you know, the budding shaman, right? Um, we also have to be critical and think maybe there is something medically going on with this person. And so it's a fine dance of of what's actually going on right like maybe there is actually something going on here and we need to take care of that or maybe it's actually this kind of psycho spiritual crisis that's unfolding and how do we support that and i mean it's going to be interesting as psychedelics start to become more mainstream and maybe people are, are going to be doing this a lot more it's like yeah are we all are we thinking about some of the fallout and where's the safety nets for people to land when they start to have very big opening experiences where it's really kind of challenging their their worldview philosophical beliefs um or is it just kind of like okay shut up go back to 
to work and, and go do your own thing. Um, so yeah, <clears throat> I spent a lot of time thinking about the potential fallout with people as we're starting to have more expansive states. Um, and, you know, are we creating systems to be able to work with people um, when they're coming out of that? Yeah, I mean, that, that dovetails perfectly into my question about um, integration. But I, I just wanted to underscore that that fine dance that you mentioned of is this a psycho-spiritual emergency that we need to support so that they can get on the other end of it? Or is this, you know, um, a psychotic break that we need to quickly get them medicated for? Um, you know, you have the, the science and art of mental health care interfacing there to help a person make a decision. Uh, but it's a hard decision to make clinically. It is, yeah. Yeah, it's... yeah. Because I saw people that really um, benefited from medication um, when yeah, I was at that place. For sure, and but they I really mean, needed it. That seventy percent, right? you know, stat is is impressive, though. I mean, think th- those seventy percent folks who would have just gone straight to an ER and been heavily sedated would have probably been underserved by that approach compared to what they got at that house. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, true. How do, how so do true, we support? Think... Go ahead, Reed. Oh, what were you saying? How do we support? Well, the, my, my comments about integration, like how mm-hmm. people going through spiritual emergencies or dark nights of the soul or just a challenging psychedelic trip, whether it's, you know, uh, at Burning Man or at one of our clinics, how do we support them? What does integration really look like? Because it's a term that you hear all the time. We use it all the yeah. time. Um, we it, It's kind of the, this is the thing we do after the psychedelic experience so that people aren't abandoned with this blasted open uh, perspective, what are what are some of the things that you like to do or emphasize for integration? Yeah, integration is like one of these terms that have we really kind of defined it? What does it really mean? Yeah. Sometimes when I hear integration, I hear just self-care and grounding, right? It's like, oh, just integrate your experience. Maybe it's like doing more yoga, more meditation, eating healthy. And I think about, okay, that's like, you know, a lot of kind of um, – self-care grounding techniques getting back in the body taking care of yourself um and then on the other side of integration where it's like more and you know coming back to that that video i mentioned from the assist conference when people are meeting these like these very mystical experiences and they say i found purpose in life and i know what i'm supposed to be doing how do you integrate something like that? How do you come back into the world and maybe live out, you know, part of your, your life's mission or your life's purpose? And that was uh, something that kind of stood out um, to one person presenting in that video. They said, I, I during my near-death experience, I got this glimpse of what I need to be doing with my life. But it was so big and so challenging that I fell into a depression because I felt like I couldn't even execute on it, mm. even though I knew that was my life mission. It just felt impossible. And so that sank me deeper and deeper into a depression. And that was definitely something that I really struggled with coming out of the near-death experience of having this big overview of you know of the world and, and how I want to show up, and then kind of coming back to a society where it may not support that I go how the hell do I show up now like I kind of got a glimpse of what I want to be doing but I also am not supported in that right now and you know so it's this dance of like okay how do I bring this wisdom back and then maybe try to move it forward in 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 our lives um I I really like to come back to the word holotropic when it comes to um integration because it leaves it a little bit open-ended right so when you break the word down um holos meaning whole and trapeze um moving towards so holotropic meaning moving towards wholeness 
and that looks like a that looks like a very um it's a very individual thing for a lot of people what does wholeness mean to you and i i like that idea of movement because it for me it describes a journey right it's not the end goal like we're constantly moving towards something um and how do we start to work with that um so yeah when i think about integration i think about the 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 post care the self-care right after experiences learning how to take care of yourself um but then it's on some of the, those bigger uh, those bigger picture things how do we integrate a new philosophical belief system how do i integrate this like new worldview? view yeah. um and that can be really challenging for a lot of people and you know then you can feel really stuck and be like what the hell do i do <laughs> you know and you know you hear stuff all the time i left my relationship i left my job people having you know really big changes in their life um and you know it's these experiences can really rattle people. Yeah, healing can be disruptive for sure. Yeah. And healing, we think of as a quite a positive thing. You know, what comes up for me as every time we get into this topic of uh, like integration and psycho-spiritual emergencies and things like that, I remember the old adage um, from the Buddhist and Zen traditions of before enlightenment chop would carry water after enlightenment chop would carry water even last night i stumbled upon a meme that was like um before enlightenment wipe bottoms after enlightenment wipe bottoms that i sent it to a, a good friend who just had a baby because you know that's what we do with mm. memes i guess uh but <laughs> but it it uh it could be the most blissful state of like you know spiritual awakening or a terrified near-death experience but you know, integration applies either way. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, you bringing that up, I mean, I th feel like that's been a big part of my process is for my integration is really just learning how to be here and learning that these experiences are in front of you all the time. Um, and if we can really just slow it down and embody that, it's unfolding in front of you um, in each moment. And so a lot of my integration practice has really just been around embodiment, right? It's like, how do I enjoy washing the dishes? How do I enjoy just being here in the present moment? Um, and for me, that that's the ultimate practice. Like, okay, yeah, chop wood, carry water. How do I enjoy that practice? Even yeah. though, you know, it probably sucks and, and it's a lot of work. Yeah. And how does it become part of day-to-day -day life? Because the truth is that we're always you know changing awakening going through difficult things going through blissful things and how do we make it uh our default mode to uh integrate as we go you know make yeah. time and space for the these practices that support one's integration that we like to talk about after a psychedelic experience but but i believe could be um incredibly powerful as our daily routine yeah. Yeah, Reed, you said practices that support integration. So to me, that's that's the thing that's individual, but there might be some practices we might recommend to people because we know based on experience, maybe even research, uh, maybe even ancient traditional wisdom, that there are some practices that tend to support the work of the inner healer more than others or tend to support integration more than others. And it seems to me in my experience that practices that, as you said, Kyle, help you em be embodied and present uh, in a mindful kind of way, tend to be uh, the most effective kinds of practices. So what's your wood, what's your water, or what is it that's going to help you enjoy chopping the wood and carrying the water? Or as I like to say, chopping water and carrying wood. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. 
So Kyle, I'm curious um, about this Vital program. I've teased it a bit throughout the conversation. Could you tell yeah, our listeners what, uh, what Vital is? Yeah, so Vital is a new 12-month uh, program that we're launching at uh, Psychedelics today. So um, <clears throat> yeah, we're really excited about it. It will be a 12-month program. We'll have a two-hour webinar on Tuesdays at, at 2 p.m. and we'll invite a special guest in to present on a, on a topic. Um, and then uh, we'll, we'll, you know, I'm thinking about how do we scale psychedelic education? Because this is going to be a bottleneck. How do we train um, people and Right now, we've been doing a lot of small groups. Like when we teach our Navigating Psychedelics course, we really only have it open to around 40 people. and We split it off into two groups. That's not very scalable. So I'm thinking about how do we scale it, but also keep it intimate. So we'll have the, the online webinar for um, everybody to join, and then we'll break out into smaller study groups throughout the week. Um, and so we'll, the, the first core module goes over the history of psychedelics, the research, the indigenous perspective, shamanism. Um, so looking at those indigenous roots... Um, um, also, the philosophical roots, too, in, in Greece and in, um, in, in that realm, too. Um, and then we'll look at psychedelic therapies. Um, so we'll break down the research that's been um, going on, looking at what uh, medicines may be good for uh, certain indications. Um, and then we'll uh, have an experience. And so that's one thing I, I've really wanted to build into this program is actually have some sort of experience. Um I think experiential learning, we need it to really kind of understand our own self and to maybe understand the what other people are going through and how to support them. Um, so we'll use breath work and in um, legal containers. Maybe we'll uh, have some cannabis assisted sessions and uh, travel overseas to have some some legal options as well for people. Um, breath work will probably be one of the main um, containers as long as it, it's feeling safe uh, to do so in, in this new age of <laughs> breath work and COVID. Um, and then the uh, fourth module will be on medical assessment, eval, um, and psych assessment. And then uh, the, <clears throat> the fifth one will be looking at integration. Um, so we'll break down and it'll be kind of like a nice little trajectory and being able to go have your own experience, come back and then learn um, different practices for, for integrating it. So what we're really trying to do is educate clinicians and therapists around the, the budding psychedelic field um, and get them prepared um, to talk talk to clients, you know, there's lots of people coming in. I know I have clients that are coming in and not necessarily knowing who I am, but just, you know, talking about, hey, I'm, I, I saw this thing on psychedelics and I really want to incorporate that. And knowing that a lot of uh, clinicians and therapists aren't, um, they don't get any of that training in their graduate programs. Um, and they're having to look elsewhere to, I like to say, developing literate psychedelic clinicians and therapists. So we're able to show up um, and uh, hold space for people that are exploring um, the um, on their own um, at times, but also wanting to prep people for the legal field too. Um, right. So getting people ahead. Um, I like that clinical literacy because it's a literacy mm -hmm. program. It's a certificate program, and and you and you point out on your website that you know this isn't necessarily a licensing program to do psychedelic assisted therapy because that doesn't exist yet. Like we no. we have people asking us all the time, clinicians, right? Where where can I get trained and become a psychedelic assisted therapist? Or you go on a psychedelic subreddit or something, and there are kids asking questions. Uh, I'm assuming they're younger, so I'm calling them kids. But um, like, how how can I get into this? What do I do? I need to become a licensed therapist. Is there a, a graduate program that I can go to that trains in this? And we're all kind of just waiting for maps to tell us what's yeah. going to be required. <laughs> um, were you at uh, Horizons in New York? 
I was for a brief, brief second. Um, I only, was only there on Saturday for a few hours. Yeah, Joyce Sun Cooper um, talked about from the Mass Public Benefit Corporation in, in her presentation talked about kind of the rollout and the commercialization and um, what it's going to take to certify clinicians to provide, at least in their case, MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. So I see programs like yours, and we're working on a training program uh, pop up, and I think they're really important for creating, like you said, literacy. And But just just to be transparent, right, we don't know what's actually going to be required from regulating bodies. No, I think that's a challenging thing that a lot of people, um, like when they're seeing a lot of these programs pop up, like it feels that psychedelic therapy is here, right? And to some degree it is, um, right? We have ketamine assisted therapies. You can go overseas and, and have your own psychedelic experience, but from, you know, a legal perspective within medicine it's not here yet Mm -hmm. um, besides ketamine and so yeah we don't know what that looks like i mean even the fda could come in and change the maps protocols right they could shift things around and i know they've already kind of done that when i went through part of that training in 2016 i think they said that they were hoping that you know you could have one lead uh, clinician as a master's level and then maybe somebody you know, maybe this was kind of like hopeful with what they wanted to see in the future. Somebody that was trained in breathwork or Hakomi, somatic experiencing, they could they could be sitting for somebody. So you'd have the lead licensed clinician and then somebody that's not licensed. Um, and I think they the FDA just changed the protocols for phase three and maybe expanded access that at least one of the team members has to have an MD and a PhD. So, I mean, these things are always shifting and it's hard to say this is what's exactly is going to happen. Um, and it's also, you know, FDA could not approve it, right? And then we could be waiting even more. Um, you know, I yeah. think we're, I think we're we're hopeful. I think the cat's out of the bag to some degree, and I don't know if we're going to go back into those like you know dark times. But the the potential is always there. And then we also you know thinking about Oregon, right? What what are their training requirements going to um, be? They don't have everything set in stone yet. I think hopefully by the summer um, they'll have that set. Um, but you know they're looking at possibly. I think their minimum requirement could be a high school diploma, right? And so we need programs to be able to train people if they're if these psilocybin service centers, psychedelic service centers are, are going to be popping up if more states take on these initiatives and, and bills. Um, but the yeah, the answer is we also don't know. Like there's no regulatory board that's licensing um, uh, these this field yet i mean even in ketamine right um i mean there's what ascap uh, a-s-k-p-p yeah but still um, it's it's but... built on the license of the practitioners i think it's uh an important point that i just wanted to highlight is uh in this uh idea of literacy or the vital training to be able to uh you know start working this field Um, you still, if you're going to be a psychedelic therapist, you still need to know how to do therapy or you're going to work with medicines. You need to know how to, how medicines work or be able to, you know, prescribe them or work with them in some ways. And, um, I, uh, see this in like parallel examples, perhaps in the, in the yoga world in the U S for example, it takes 200 hours to get trained as a yoga teacher. And to me, that's, uh, almost comical how few hours it is but but at least it's a formal training that builds on someone's years of practice or opens a door for someone's years of practice uh in a deep way and i think uh 
you know, my perspective is the same way, the same things apply in, in these fields. Um, and that's why I love kind of the, the training approach that you have of, of really, uh, empowering, you know, clinicians, therapists, and others with these, um, these new tools and skills and, and, uh, areas of knowledge and wisdom to use in that, in this emerging space, you know? Yeah. And I always think like, I think a lot of this also, I think the reason why I started to get more into education around this was thinking, who did I want to talk to or who did I need when I was going through a lot of this stuff? Nobody knew about kind of these, these states. And as it starts to become more mainstream, more people are turning on to it and we need people that to, to understand these states and how to properly support people. So, you know, the one big focus is really focusing on training people around integration. You know, that is a legal way to get involved, to be able to mm-hmm. provide support to clients who are coming back with really powerful experiences so we can support them and maybe not cause any more harm. I remember, you know, going to a therapist and it was just so shameful of like, what are you doing? And I'm like, oh, like I just needed a place to, to process this. Um, so, yeah, you know, this the the I, I'm glad that you brought up like even the yoga training. Right. Because this is a question. What like how long does it take to qualify somebody to do this work? Um, I think about the breathwork training that I went through is a minimum of two years and it was heavily on experience. So you had to have your own experiences. Um, And I was originally modeling vital off of that training. It was going to be a two year program, um, at least uh, five or four in person, five day retreats. But I think COVID kind of pulled me back a little bit and said, you know, uh, thinking about accessibility, mm-hmm. being online, being able to do more of the didactic type of learning remotely um, makes it a little bit more accessible and cutting down on, on um, you know, the retreat time, all the travel and the expenses. Um, but, you know, I, I think it took me about four years to even host a workshop, even though I had that minimum of two year of training. Like it, I, I didn't feel comfortable until like maybe four years in. And when I did first host a workshop, it was a small group of friends that I knew, mm-hmm. right, to kind of ease me in. And I had all this shadowing experience in, in bigger groups. But um, yeah, I mean, it takes a while for to really train people in, in this new modality. But that's also going to be the bottleneck. And we have this urgency yep. to want to deliver these new therapies because people really need it. So it's this fine balance of like, you know, there's this urgency to train people and get these medicines available. But also, how do we do it responsibly and really kind of educate people around how powerful these substances are and to really um you know proceed with caution and great care yeah and like steve said at that talk by maps at horizons they mentioned their goal um their 2031 goal of training 30,000 therapists in mdma therapy so that 1 million people can get mdma therapy for ptsd by 2031 and yeah that that certainly takes a village and uh is a yeah. is a huge effort and i do like to also remember that because uh, we're doing a lot of uh psychedelic studies and going through in the clinical research realm and and going through different training programs um by these uh the various sponsors doing the work and one thing that strikes me is you don't have to learn a whole new type of psychotherapy that pairs with this a lot of it is getting out of the way of the medicine and working on like the preparation and the integration and the principles of of holding uh you know safe compassionate empathetic space and presence for the individual 
That's why I like the idea of, of psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy. Because in the <clears> States, <throat> if you're going to get psychotherapy, this is a protected term, um, it, needs to become, it needs to come from somebody who's licensed. And the whole reason we have regulating bodies and licensure organizations is to protect the public from shysters, right? <laughs> is to yeah. protect the public from, from quacks. If you hold a license... Uh, in, a, in a society, you should be able to go to a person who holds a license and be able to make some assumptions about that person because they were granted a, a license by a regulating body that has rigorous standards. They have to meet at least minimum training requirements. So it makes sense that we would want to pair this psychedelic medicine thing with trained psychotherapists. But I, I don't like to get territorial either. Like the idea that the FDA said it has to be an MD or PhD is kind of hilarious to me. I mean, I, some of the best therapists I know are not PhDs. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm a clinical psychologist. I'm a PhD. But, uh, I mean, I know some terrible therapists who are PhDs. But, anyway, I digress a little bit. <laughs> I'm on my little soapbox. Yeah, and who knows? That, that may change, right? That just may be for the phase three and expanded access. Maybe they just want a little bit more, um, you know, restrictions there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Kyle, I know we're getting toward the end of the time uh, that you have available. Really appreciate your time. Is there anything else you wanted to share with our audience, our audience or, or say before we sign off? Um, I just want to say thank you for, for having me on. This has been awesome. Yeah, and man. thank you, everybody, for listening. Um, yeah, if anybody wants to learn more about Vital or any of our other trainings, you can check out Vital at vitalpsychedelictraining.com. Um, check us out at psychedelicstoday.com and listen to us on any podcast that you app that that you use um but yeah this has been really great so i, I just really appreciate it absolutely well, yeah thank and you we're, we're gonna link to all that stuff in our show notes as well but yeah thank you for yeah. being willing and for being part of this psychedelic movement yeah, i want to echo that i know i can only imagine the number of people you've touched and informed through your efforts through the years um myself and steve included so yeah, yeah it's been fun to chat That's and cool. thank you for everything you do yeah thank you been an integration process for sure (laughs) we're glad you survived the mountain yeah me too thank you dear listener for listening it means a lot to me psychedelic therapy frontiers is brought to you by novamind a mental health company that specializes in psychedelic medicine and research you can learn more about novamind's mission to increase access to legal safe and evidence-based psychedelic medicine at novamind.ca If you like what you heard, please subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you're using to listen or watch. Also, if you're feeling generous today, please leave us a glowing review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. If you'd like to reach out to us with questions, suggestions, scathing criticisms, etc., please email us at psychfrontiers at novamind.ca. Thanks again. Hey listeners, it's Steve Thayer here, letting you know that Numinous offers unique training opportunities for mental health practitioners to develop their skills and expertise in offering psychedelic-assisted therapy to clients. These courses are carefully crafted by Numinous professionals like myself, Reed, Joe, and others, and offer a variety of high-quality learning experiences. So, if you would like to learn more about these trainings, you can find the link in the show notes below, or you can visit numinous.com forward slash training. That's numinous.com forward slash training. The content of this podcast does not constitute medical advice or mental health treatment. Consult with a medical or mental health professional if you believe you are in need of mental health treatment.